So this week, we have a really interesting interview with Alexei Golubyov uh, about his book, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia. And this is um, one of my events that I organize for the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Fall Series, uh, The Long Soviet 70s. And it's a really fascinating conversation and book, by the way, I encourage everybody to check it out, about material objects and how they shaped Soviet identity and Soviet selfhood and understandings of history and everyday life. So I was curious just to ask both of you, Margaret and, and Rusana, um, I love learning about everyday life in the USSR. Like the most mundane things just fascinates me. So I was kind of curious, you know, what both of you think about this question of everyday life and, and understanding what it means. I don't know if like growing up, I had any particular interest in the Soviet everyday life, maybe because I was surrounded by the remnants of it. <laughs> uh, so it was more on the spectrum of uh, not interest or curiosity, but probably just, I don't know, normality and boredom. <laughs> I guess as a kid, I'd rather like, yeah, I just wanted to learn more about, I guess, everyday life in the US or elsewhere. But you know, uh, what I wanted to say is so earlier today, I was, um, I went on a walk around the city. I'm in Yuzhna Sakhalinsk right now. And I saw this huge mosaic on the side of a building with an oil worker and an oil rig. And so it said, communism is our common goal, you know, and it's just, I don't know, like, I'm also, I'm so used to seeing those um, mosaics and those, I don't know, uh, slogans. But it struck me that it might must be so strange, even though it's very like we're used to it. It must be still so strange to live uh, on the ruins of a failed social experiment. And when I lived in Russia as a kid, as a teenager, obviously, I didn't think about it, didn't reflect on it. But now, like having this distance, being away for some time and then coming back, it just feel like it's so bizarre, like being surrounded by that materiality of something that's no more. Do you think, I mean, before I, uh, you jump in, Margaret, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like, what are people's relationship to these remnants, right? Because they're everywhere. They're embedded in this, the architecture in many cases of cities all around Russia and the former Soviet Union. I, I wonder, I mean, I don't know if you have an answer or a comment, but I wonder if for daily life, people moving through their daily lives, this stuff is just invisible in the sense of it's just there. It doesn't, it doesn't evoke any response or any meaning, certainly not any inspiration, right? Like communism was our common goal. Maybe it might produce a certain like, like, ah, you know, this bullshit. <laughs> it's, it, it produces maybe like a certain cynicism, maybe, I don't know, or maybe nothing at all. Um, at the same time, I do wonder if it could also be a, a form of like the, the engagement with these things, as much as there is engagement, a form of nostalgia in the sense of what was in a very more overt way, um, because all of a lot of this stuff has actual messages, right? Like, you know, communism is our common goal, for example, if it functions as a, as a, 
a, a reminder of what was, what was lost, and what, like you said, what had failed. I, I definitely think that for most people in their like daily lives, those spaces are invisible, they're normal, they're, they're, they're repurposed for, you know, for new ends. And so they're kind of built, I, I mean, yeah, they're part of the like material architecture of like say an urban space. So they don't stand out, but nonetheless, I mean, they must be still in a way, even, even if you don't like consciously pay attention or reflect on this it must be that they're still like structuring your um daily life or your i don't know your understanding of yourself in this world and all those things even if you're like not like for example earlier on i, I took a train actually across russia <laughs> to get to the far east like the craziest idea ever and i made a stop in um yekaterinburg and, you know, like the, the downtown of Yekaterinburg, it's all like it was built in the 20s and 30s. It's all like the Soviet constructivist uh, paradise, <laughs> Mecca for anyone who's interested in constructivism. Um, and I was just like walking around and I was thinking, well, like you look at the city, but like these like huge boulevards and these giant I don't know buildings and like what you see in downtown there all these buildings they were like for public use for uh for people right and like like how it must feel when you're walking around and like in downtown you have a theater a public library like you don't have like banks or it, it's just it struck me you know you know what I mean and then like I turn around the corner and I see this like huge skyscraper that was built like I guess recently and it's like a headquarters of some like oil corporation you know um, and I started thinking about like American cities and how like if you go downtown LA or New York it's all like you know banks and like capitalism and all that and how like I mean it must be that it's still like influencing the way we see ourselves in the world even if we're like not thinking about it you know every day consciously what, what about you margaret what is what is your relate what is your are you interested in this kind of engagement with or or trying to understand everyday life or soviet everyday life in particular yeah i'm i'm glad you brought up the the idea of nostalgia because for me when i imagine every soviet everyday Soviet life, I have to admit the first thing that comes to my mind is, is hearing my parents and their friends and family like go on about what things used to be like and, and their, in their youth. And when I imagine Soviet everyday life, I immediate, immediately think of people thinking about their youth, you know, and not like the actual act of living in it. So that's actually what I really liked about this interview was that like the idea of bringing materiality to the forefront of the question of selfhood really like forces you to reimagine my assumptions that I have and like basically like subvert like the fundamental understanding of what Soviet societal constructs like looked and felt like and what what is it that navigates you through through the day to day? Is it the things? Is it the people? And I, I actually I really like too that 
because because at first whenever I was listening to him talk about it I was thinking like it's it's kind of a hard thing for a hard pill for me to swallow the idea that it's the things that matter the most that it's the things that like define the self but as I continued reading on in the book it kind of became revealed to me that that wasn't the point like it was never the the point of asking the question was and I'm quoting him now is to make people appear before us in a new light in their full worth so it's a technique, it's a method to approach um, getting rid of those assumptions rather than like honing in on like the actual fact of materiality. Going back to you, Sean, you, you began this conversation saying that you find it fascinating learning more about the everyday life in the Soviet Union. Uh, tell us more. Well, admittedly, it, it comes from a position of exoticism first and foremost i think i think this is needs to be stated because the idea that everyday life in the soviet past or soviet union is interesting is already presupposes a, a a certain exoticism with it right it's it's so different it's so or you know how different is it right so there's already this um but on the other hand i i it's not just the soviet experience that that interests me and, and all of the historical work that I, that really inspires me, like say, you know, E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class is a good, is a classic book favorite of mine. There, and this goes to something that Margaret just said. It reveals the complexity of humanity in its most mundane way of how one moves through life, through space. And what I find interesting about this approach of materiality is how space structures, not just our, our physical movements, but our perceptions. Like you mentioned, Rusana, this like interesting thing where in downtown Yekaterinburg, you have all of these public spaces, right? Theaters and whatever the Soviet urban model in the center of the city. Whereas, say, like Los Angeles, which I know very well, is is corporatized. Many downtowns are corporatized or here downtown Pittsburgh, right? The biggest buildings are insurance companies. And I think it says something about what is the center of society. Here in the sense of the, the Soviet space, it being public, it being, you know, uh, more towards, say, culture or something like this. I think it says what is the center of society to some extent. And, and I think that's, that's incredibly interesting in how it reflects back on, you know, how you understand yourself. Like when I go to downtown Pittsburgh and seeing all these corporate buildings, it's incredibly alienating to me because first off, I don't belong there. Like really, I can't like go into the building. And you don't see yourself as part of like that this space hasn't been built for you. Exactly. Exactly. Now, there are, you know, of course, there are public spaces and all these things, but it's a different, it's a different relationship. And, and, and more often, and I could say this also in Russia, um, public spaces being more and more commodified in the sense of the spaces there for the consumption of X, Y, and Z, whether it's food or entertainment, it's about consumerism. Um, and what I, what I really find interesting about the public spaces erected in the Soviet uh, era is they have no, they're just there. 
<laughs> they're just they're just there in terms of like they don't have an instrumentalism in the sense of trying to stimulate economic activity. I guess this is thing. This is the thing. It, it produces a different type of subject in the sense of it's not we're not economic subjects in those spaces. We're subjects of leisure, maybe, or subjects of you know gathering or subjects of, you know, interpersonal relationships. And I think this is what's really uh, interesting about Alexei's work is that he's trying to look at some of those spaces and material objects to uncover how they shape our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. So that's a long, long digression. So I just find this stuff fascinating. It's interesting, Rosanna, that you keep bringing up... Um the idea that these buildings were kind of built for you. Like there's this sense of ownership that, that you, as a, that it seems like you kind of hone in on in like the Soviet mind or like, is it, is it a sense of ownership? Is it a lack of ownership? Like objects play growing up in the United States, obviously like in a culture that ownership is something that's like constantly being like affirmed and like lauded. So when you think about, or whenever at least I'm trying to like conceptualize what everyday Soviet life was back in the day, like the question of materiality, like forces me to like kind of delete my ideology, <laughs> you know, and, and this, I, this, this question of ownership, I think really has a lot to do with, with, uh, with the role that materiality plays in our conception of the self too. Right. I mean, because it was built for the people. So that's why. <laughs> and I mean, we shouldn't like idealize it that it was, oh, I mean, it was <laughs> a lot of times it didn't work well, but still there was an effort. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host Sean Guillory and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who are generous enough to give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the srbpodcast.org website and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So who wants to, who wants to introduce Alexei? Alexei Golubov is a scholar of Russian history with a focus on social and cultural history of the 20th century and an additional expertise in science and technology studies, transnational history, and digital history. He's the author of several articles and books, including The Search for a Socialist El Dorado, Finnish Immigration from the United States and Canada to Soviet Karelia in the 1930s, published in 2014 by the University of Manitoba Press. Most recently, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Let me say that again. And most recently, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. 
Here's Alexei Golubov. Okay, well, you know, your first, your, your most recent book, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia, you know, it's a really, I mean, I'm reading it and maybe you have, of course, you have a different perspective on this because, you know, you know your own research better than I do. But it, it seems like a quite a departure from from some of your research in the past. And in particular, the previous book that uh, you published, which I mentioned on fin Finnish immigration to the USSR, uh, and also you did some work on, uh, wrote some stuff about the, the Barents region. Um, which is you know north subarctic European subarctic, and so I'm I'm actually really curious. How did you get from say Finnish immigration to looking at material objects? Well, the answer is quite obvious. I changed my field, and uh, well, prior to moving to the University of British Columbia, I worked for five years at the Department of Northern History of Northern Europe at Petrozavodsk University, where I kind of had regional specialization in North Russia, particularly Karelia and the Nordic countries. And that is why my first book written together with Irina Takala, also of Petrozavodsk University, dealt with that kind of, uh, it, it's a very interesting story about uh, six and a half thousand of Finnish Americans and Canadians who during the Great Depression decided to move to Soviet Karelia and build, you know, a socialist, their socialist future here. And uh, we had the archive of the resettlement agency of Soviet Karelia, which was uh, taking care of this immigration. So in some ways, it's a historian's dream come true, an untapped archive, all at your disposal, something that you can uh, use to write um, to write a book, which which we did. And then kind of this is also the context in which the history book and encyclopedia of the Barents region, the two projects where I was a co-editor, appeared. There was a big collaborative project between northern universities of Russia, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And um, yeah, that was an interesting experience. But then I realized that I want to have bigger conversations. I want to kind of... Um, so I, I decided to move to to join the doctoral program in history at the University of British Columbia, and it made sense to change my specialization to have these broader conversations and not just with fellow Russianists. So for the first couple of years in the doctoral program, I was looking at for a topic, for a good topic, and I was reading a lot of social and cultural history. I made it one of the fields for my comprehensive exam. And it really helped me to see that the scholarly discussions that we have, uh, we had at that time and we still have on Soviet culture and subjectivity and selfhood were really preoccupied with the questions of language and ideology. And kind of, whereas in social history, there was much said about materiality, right? And these much more complex relationship uh, about people living in the worlds of objects, but also kind of interacting with this world of objects and being made by this world of objects. So this, in some ways, this is another textbook example, right? My first book was about finding an archive. My second book was about and identifying a gap in the scholarship, in the current scholarship. 
Is there a, uh, do you have a personal connection with, with some of the things you dealt with in this book? Like, for example, you know, models, did you do models as a kid? Did you like, did it, this doing the research and writing this book, have you reflect on your own relationship with objects, say in growing up? Um, yes and, and no. So one kind of thing that I was really sensitive about was to try to build up a distance between my own experience and the uh, my position as a scholar. And so I was trying to avoid some of the objects with which I had some more, you know, intimate relationship and focus on the objects that, on the things, right, on the uh, buildings, spaces, and so forth, that I could find actual information in the archive. So I kind of did have that <laughs> fetish, historian's fetish of um, finding, you know, archival sources, archival documents. And in some ways, yes, it was informed by own, my own experiences. For instance, I did come back to my region and I wrote a chapter on the Museum of Kijin in that book, but with uh, very different, with no longer, you know, this region-specific focus. So you were never a bodybuilder? <laughs> I was never a bodybuilder. What I did, what I did was that uh, when I realized I want to write that chapter, I went to the gym <laughs> and I started working out just to see how it works, you know, uh, to understand. The same thing about models. You asked me whether I was making models. When I realized by going through the archives, by trying to find material for my chapters that this skill model hobby was huge back in the Soviet era. I ordered, um, I think I ordered uh, SS series, the first steam uh, ship that won the blue ribbon. Uh, and I built that model exactly in order to see again, uh, to have some kind of, as anthropologists would say, participant observation wars. You begin your book, with, and you did interviews for this book. So, and and you begin your book with a discussion of how some of your respondents to in these interviews answered the question, "What was your typical daily experience back then?" That that is during in the Soviet Union. It, what talk about some of the answers they gave? Yeah, that was that's an interesting question. I had a range, a kind of broad range of uh, respondents and a broad range of answers. I did collect many interviews, and in the end, I directly cite only five or six of them, so there are not that many in the bibliography, but I previously worked as a director of the Oral History Center at Petrozovsk University, uh, so we, oral history is something that I know and deeply appreciate, and I was taking dozens of interviews for this particular project, and I mean, you interview a lot of people yourself, so you, you know perfectly well that the most uh, difficult thing is to break that initial barrier between you and your uh, informant. And I found a good solution. So I asked them to describe a regular day. And believe it or not, the inspiration came from the Beatles, a day in the life from the Sergeant Pepper. I heard the news today, oh boy. So I kind of, yeah, I started asking them what, uh, what kind of describe just any sort of typical day and um, several people were kind of gave me a really you know thick description of their how public transit how buses in particular uh, because I was uh, taking many interviews in Petrozavodsk 
how buses structured their daily life, right? How they sort of organized their day uh, temporarily, but also speci uh, spatially. I had a worker who described his daily routine in a repair shop back in the 70s, right? Speaking of the 70s. And it was amazing how he spoke in almost Latourian terms, telling me without any prompts from me how the lorries and the trucks that they repaired structured human bodies around kind of these very objects they worked on. Uh, in St. Petersburg, I talked to a few kind of ex-hooligans uh, who now some 40 years from their glorious days in Leningrad back streets since sort of narrated their experience of navigating themselves through this urban space, right? Trying to occupy themselves, trying to find community in this alienating space. Uh, so yeah, the range of responses was quite, quite big and it was really useful because from the very beginning, it sort of tuned me, it made me sensitive to class and the social kind of differences in late Soviet society. Well, you know, one of the things that is is really interesting, and it's kind of referenced in this um, interview you had with this factory worker about the 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 presence of productivist language in in Soviet culture, the relationship between human and machine. Uh, where do human? What is the relate? How do the humans and machines fit together? Um, what is this productivist language that you that you talk about that's pervasive in Soviet culture? So the way I describe it in my first chapter is that this is uh, certain ways of speaking and thinking about people in terms of their relations to technology. And what really helped me understand the um, pervasiveness of this language in uh, Soviet and post-Soviet culture is that I moved from Russia to Canada and then to America because in this continent, I was never asked about uh, why it matters what I do in the same way as people would ask me in Russia. Because, well, think about it. In Russia, I studied and I taught Russian history. I had a position as a junior faculty member for five years at Petrozavodsk University. And from time to time, people, uh, not my colleagues, just random people I would meet in the streets, in the archives, my neighbors, would seriously question my contribution to the social good. Like, you know, a parasite on the working body because, you know, you don't do things with your hands. You don't produce uh, something that you that is tangible. You don't contribute to uh, the material production in our society. And um, here, right in Houston, I study a weird, strange, and non-existent place. I don't get questions like this, right? So this is a kind of a very different attitude to our profession, kind of just as a case, that made me kind of sensitive to the fact that in Russia, and especially in the Soviet Union, this understanding of people and understanding of Russian and, or Soviet culture was so centered around certain objects, primarily technological objects, that I decided to write my first chapter on it. You know, that, that's, that, that makes me wonder about, you know, the fact that in the period we're talking about, right, this, the, the 60s and really into the 70s, you have the development of a massive technocratic 
white collar class in the Soviet Union. And a lot of that is producing what some, some theorists have called affective labor, right? It's not producing actual material objects. It's producing anything from, um, you know, academic work to other types of forms of knowledge. So how did, how did those classes, do you have a sense of how those classes understood themselves in regard to this productivist language? Well, you see, uh, productivist language is not the only language in Soviet culture. So kind of uh, you can occupy a position where it doesn't really matter. Um, if you sort of uh, try to uh, limit yourself to your social circle, this sort of dialogues kind of did not really matter. I uh, lived in, I grew up and lived in a working sort of working class neighborhood. So for me, that was more important because I was sort of uh, communicating with people, my friends, my neighbors, like people, um, acquaintances, for whom what I did was like blush, we would say in Russia. So something that does not really uh, have material foundations, right? So, and on a number of occasions, they would refer to me uh, as a person who is not doing serious work. That's 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 real. That's really. I mean, the relationship between this this whole idea of producing. I mean, it's a. To me, it seems like a very twenty. It's a very twentieth century discourse, right? The production of things, whereas in the late twentieth and now certainly in the twenty first century, the main forms of production, it's not producing material objects, right? It's it is really about producing affect. So it. It's interesting that that discourse still even lingers today, where people are asking you, like, "What did you? <laughs> what do you do?" But yeah, but you see, in this sense, that's what language does. Language does not reflect uh, the surrounding reality. Language has so many functions, and um, certain discourses they do kind of lag behind, and it doesn't mean that they're not powerful. We mentioned the fact that you write about uh, these models, like plastic models of planes and lots of military objects. And then, of course, you have this this chapter on the effort to preserve certain architecture, right? So plastic and wood um, are the two main materials here. And and you talk about them in terms of, you know, how they, cr how they dealt with Soviet historical imagination. So in the way I read the, the models is, is almost like looking at the present and future and the architectural preservation is about the past. So talk about this interesting relationship to, uh, of historical imagination to these objects. Well, models are also uh, about the past because most of the models that you make, they are kind of models of historic vehicles and aircrafts and so forth. Yeah, so when I decided that I want to fill in that gap and I want to write, uh, I want to invert that relationship, not no longer people making things, but things making people. In fact, um, my earlier, the subtitle for my book that I originally offered to the publisher was how late Soviet things made late Soviet people. And I think People in the marketing department of Cornell were terrified. I had to come up with a different name. But the idea was exactly that, right? To invert this relationship and see what we can get, what kind of um, new knowledge, new historical knowledge we can produce. Uh, so, yeah, models and uh, churches. I was thinking about writing 
uh, about the materials, the social, in terms of showing how things and spaces orient us, orient us in space, but also in time. So I needed to pick up certain objects that would kind of uh, suggest people what sort of relationship they have with the future, with the past, and with the present. And in chapter one, those were, you know, big, effective objects, right? Uh, that people would consume mostly visually, kind of. So that was the least material chapter in my book. But then the second one, uh, plastic models, was interesting to me because in the archives, I discovered that it was a huge hobby, kind of, because it was integrated in the extracurricular activities in uh, Soviet education through... Uh, houses of Pioneers through all those extracurricular Khrushchev uh, organizations and activities that were around increasingly in the late Soviet era. It, it was a huge army of Soviet children who went through making these models. Uh, even if they would kind of attend uh, this Khrushchev, attend this hobby group for a year and then stop going there. But I was I became curious in what does it do to you? So when you interact with this model plane, what kind of, what, how does it change you, right? And what I discovered was that, especially for the people who became more serious about it, and I, uh, another inspiration for this chapter came from my interviews because some of the people that I interviewed for this book, they had like real museums of these scale models at home. Uh, what I discovered was that there was nothing like the Marxist version of history in the materials and in the conversations that would accompany this model hobby. So it was as nationalist as it gets. Uh, and that was still in the 70s when if you take a Soviet era textbook, yes, it was about classes, it was about formations, it was. Uh, it did have this kind of Marxist narrative and conceptual structure, even kind of well, with certain essential, essentialist uh, deviations. Um, but still, if you take model hobby, that kind of is arguably an important cultural practice in the late Soviet era for, for boys, of course, that's a gendered practice. It was about great people, you know, great engineers, great uh, kind of prominent officers the, who operated these machines and planes. Uh, and in that sense, it is, um, it, it is not much different from the model hobby in, in the UK or in Canada or in Italy or elsewhere, right? It is a way of sort of uh, scaling down nationalism <laughs> and uh, building, yeah, a museum of your nation's glorious past on your table or in your cupboard. With, and how does this relate to wooden churches? Yeah, churches is, a, is different. So as I mentioned, I wanted to kind of explore, uh, in, in a way, I kind of the book is an almost a case of, kind of a set of case studies. So I did want to have another object that did suggest certain forms of historical imagination. And I I realized that wooden churches, I worked in the Museum of Kija with their materials. And what I saw very surprisingly was that uh, the people who were 
behind these architectural preservation, and in particular Alexander Opolovnikov, one of the early theorists of uh, preservation, architectural preservation in uh, mid-20th century Soviet Russia, and in the second half of the 20th century, what they did was that they took the concept and the language of their teachers who were Soviet constructivists, who were uh, people who stood behind a very vibrant social agenda of Soviet architecture in the 1920s and 30s, and then use this language and use this uh, rhetorical uh, framework in order to justify that through these churches we will establish an authentic conne connection with our like genuine past, and in a way also kind of uh, strip it out of any sort of emancipatory agenda and use it to kind of form museumification of buildings, but also the communities. Your next chapter deals with the, this issue, and you mentioned this with, with your interviews with the hooligans of urban space and how urban space shaped people's behaviors and practices. Um, what are some what are some key urban spaces that you looked at that structured Soviet everyday life? Yeah, in this chapter, what I discovered was that it was not so much some urban spaces that shaped Soviet everyday life, but the urban landscape in general. But it did so differently for different social groups. And the thing is that some of these urban spaces are much better described. In, in the scholarship. So my argument in the fourth and the fifth chapter is that kind of this unequal kind of uh, situation that we know much better some aspects of Soviet urban life and almost next to nothing about some other aspects is because of a class bias. People who have a social, cultural, historical voice, they live account historical accounts uh, or contemporary accounts of places such as youth cafes, such as Arbat, such as heritage sites, and of course, apartments that are omnipresent. Something that they populate, something that they occupy, right? And we as historians, having these sources at our disposal, we also tend to kind of, uh, tend to focus on that. There are much, many more articles written on youth cafes than at I don't know, some kind of uh, right, you know, shot bar uh, somewhere in, uh, I don't know, in a mid-sized Russian city because, well, people who go to shot bars don't leave memoirs, don't leave accounts, right? But arguably, this is just as an important part of the historical experience, Soviet historical experience, as youth cafes. So what I was dealing with in that chapter was this discrepancy in how the Soviet urban space is addressed in research literature. And I figure out that this question should be reformulated. Who's everyday life, right? Uh, if you take streets and stairwells, uh, this is a terrifying place for teenagers from, you know, well-to-do families. But this is where working class youth is spending their time. This is where working class youth is sort of, kind of, they populate this place. These are their places. They fight over the control of these places against uh, kind of similar youth groups from a different neighborhood. If you take garages, and you probably know that there were no, you know, attached garages in uh, back in the Soviet era, so kind of 
if you had a car and if you wanted uh, a shelter for your car, you would enter a garage cooperative and then it's kind of some 20, 30 minutes walk from your house, you would have these long, long rows of, uh, of garages. Well, again, they were far, far away from being purely utilitarian buildings, right? Mid-aged men uh, transformed these garages into so many things, like from brothels to kind of uh, gyms to some, uh, some of them would keep their collections, certain collections, right? Same models or something else like uh, beer jars <laughs> in these garages. Uh, so, and yeah, front yards of apartment blocks, they also have their residence, uh, like old babushkas who would sit in the bench in front of the entrance door and would uh, kind of uh, exchange rumors about everybody living behind this uh, door of the stairwell. And then stairwells, right? So, uh, yeah, I realized that what I can do is that by focusing on such a seemingly uh, invisible place as a stairwell of a Soviet apartment block, I can get access to this historical experience that is out there that I know you can find through personal accounts, through kind of stories, through uh, bits and pieces of kind of memoir accounts. But this story hasn't been told about. You know, these spaces that you talk about, the stairwells, um, you know, the the garages, um, these are, they're not exclusively male, but they're, I would imagine they're predominantly male spaces. So are there similar spaces for, um, for, for women that, that they have a certain relationship with, to the space, like, you know, these young men in stairwells or in their garages with their buddies in their cars? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it was called the second shift for a reason, right? So having the second shift uh, for most Soviet women meant that you had a, you had much less free time. And so you had a much smaller range of places that you could go to. So in this sense, uh, I think I kind of my book has a gender bias that I'm very well aware of and that I discuss in the introduction and throughout the text. Uh, but yeah, coming back to your question, I think this repertoire of urban places was first it was not as broad and second it was associated places like garages and stairwells, it was associated with moral kind of concerns, which was much graver for women than for men. So I think mo kind of most of them would, would avoid it. And um, those who would not would become even more marginalized than the kind of male communities occupying those places. So the, there's much more work to be done on this, I guess. <laughs> Well, you know, another another very male space that you looked at is in regard to um, bodybuilding, right? These underground gyms. Um, the first question I have about the uh, going along these gender lines of those other spaces, urban spaces, but also the bodybuilding space. What does this say to you about the how these spaces shaped masculinity? That's an excellent question, and it's a question that I don't have a definite 
or definitive answer to because I don't think there was just one version of masculinity around in late Soviet society. So, so for somebody who was, you know, an engineer working on those grand technological kind of effective things, it was one version of masculinity that was represented in a number of Soviet films that glorified, you know, engineers uh, such as uh, Seven Days of One Year, that famous uh, film about nuclear physicists. Uh, model building kind of uh, model hobby implied some other version of masculinity, right? If you were an architectural preservation uh, expert or if you were concerned about uh, have uh, environmental issues, that's also kind of a certain version of masculinity. Although here you could probably speak about a different social kind of position because you could be a preservation, many preservation experts and were women. Uh, so going, yeah, going through those, that is, I think the, one of the kind of, uh, heuristic, uh, potential, an important heuristic potential of this approach of writing history through biographies and trajectories of things is that it, it immediately destroys any attempt to think and write about the Soviet masculinity, right? The Soviet selfhood. Kind of, there is no such a, there was no such a thing as the Soviet man or the Soviet woman. There were a broad repertoire of practices that was available to people of late socialism, and um, bodybuilding was was one of them. And the reason I decided to take and write the chapter is that at some point I realized that I can't write a material history without the body, and in this way. Uh, when back, like it was 10 years ago when I started working on this project and Jane Bennett's book, uh, Vibrant Matter, was a big hit. Still around that time and new materialism was one of these kind of uh, fashionable and in certain school a mainstream approach to understanding materiality. I realized that I am no way a new materialist because as a historian I need evidence and the argument that things have agency per se is simply hard for me to make. How can I back it up with primary sources? How can I back it up with primary evidence? However, if you add the body and its affects, then all of a sudden it starts making sense, much more sense. Right? Things, they do animate us things they do have a certain agency, but not per se. They do it by causing certain effects in our bodies, an effect of pride or an effect of shame, right? Uh, they kind of, these emotional response that we developed in regard to certain things, this is how kind of uh, they become certain, in certain way participants of the historical process. And um, yeah, an argument that the bodybuilding equipment has a certain historical agency per se is speculative and impossible to prove. But when you describe how suburban teenagers from working class neighborhood of Moscow, you know, they pump iron, they acquire strength and self-confidence, and through it, they acquire a social agency that they use it to travel to downtown Moscow to beat up punks and metalheads and enforce social order the way they understand, right, the social order, of course, then this is how you see that iron, right, the bodybuilding equipment and um, and Soviet basements, the locus of the 
uh, kind of this subculture, how it becomes historically important and meaningful. I want to ask you about your your conception of the self because. I mean, it comes from what you just said, but also in your book, you speak of the self as something that is fragmented, that is contradictory, that is certainly historical. It changes over time. It goes, you know, it zigzags. Um, can you t- talk a little bit about how you you tried to look like, it, you know, supposing there's a Soviet self, like looking at the the question of Soviet self already presupposes its existence. So. Can you can you talk about how you dealt with this issue of like on the one hand you want to, you're trying to portray a fragmented multivalent self versus the the tendency to essentialize it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in in this book, I have no agenda to build a coherent theory of the human self. So this is my kind of departing point that uh, the human self is an illusion. Our self ourselves right our understanding of the cells ourselves it emerges in certain situations that Louis Althusser described as interpolation right so when we get interpolated by certain authority as in his example we come into the social being but uh, and here's where kind of my contribution starts Uh, I thought of things playing in certain kind of uh, ways playing the same role so the weightlifting equipment appeals to you, right? And it brings you into the social being as a Soviet teenage bodybuilder, right? When you give it your body, when you sort of work out, when you exercise, and it changes your body, right? But it also changes yourself. Uh, same thing about wooden churches or wooden boats. I actually describe a case uh, in my book, I interviewed a um, prominent uh, heritage boat builder in uh, in North Russia, who in an interview mentioned, you know, in passing, that he was trained as an engineer. And he was an engineer, and his hobby was to uh, design spaceships. So he was, as a hobby, designing spaceships. That was the 70s, right? The uh, hot days of the space race. And then at some point, he encountered old Pomor ships. Or even maybe it started with his hobby of just kind of sailing, yacht sailing. And again, that changed him. So this encounter with old boats, this encounter with this kind of artifacts of the Pomor culture, Pomor's are uh, ethnic Russian group that lived along the coast of the White Sea and so was engaged in seafaring and the uh, sea mammal hunting and fishing, of course, a lot. So the encounter with those material objects, with the relics of their culture, it made him from an engineer into an enthusiast of heritage shipbuilding, right? And so he assumed this identity of the last Pomor of the 21st century, right? From a kind of from a designer of spaceships. So in this sense, you could see how these effective objects. I think same thing happened to Alexander Apolovnikov, who was trained as a constructivist architect, but then he received an appointment to make a register of historical buildings in Karelia back in 1946, and out of this experience he emerged as somebody and if you read him that's pretty obvious who is 
just fascinated with the heritage architecture and who he invented his own kind of system explaining why uh, in the early 18th century though that uh, in, indigenous vernacular tradition reached its peak and why it was only getting worse from that high point he used it to justify that the museum of Kizhe, uh kind of that the uh, churches of Kizhe should become the center of the museum so and and so on and so forth so in this sense what i was trying to do in in this book is to show that yes here we have the situations when things offer you certain model of the self and you pick it up and you become a boat builder, you become a bodybuilder, you become kind of, uh, you engaged in working out in front of the television set, uh, trying to get a body as beautiful as uh, Jane Fonda. <laughs> I, I have another question about the self. Like, so in the way, um, it, particularly in, in, in Soviet historiography, the self has been in relationship to the ideology. The self has been in this, you know, looked at in terms of self-subjectification, right? Through diary writing. It's been looked at in terms of relationship to labor, but you are actually looking at leisure time, right? And all of these spaces, these are spaces that people are occupying themselves, occupying the space and doing things and interacting with materiality during times that it seems like leisure. Um, so can, can you talk about the, that role of leisure time in Soviet life in the 70s? and its importance in shaping individuals? Well, I, I guess your question contains the answer. You, you described it pretty well. Uh, yeah, so kind of, yeah, leisure time is perhaps the time when you kind of actively involved in the search of yourself, right? This is the time when you can put kind of some uh, of the things that you think make you a better version of you to test, right? And so kind of that's what you do. So you can, uh, again, the chapter about the television set was really eye-opening for me in this regard because there is a huge cultural conflict around the television set in late Soviet and uh, post-Soviet culture that is centered exactly about this question that the leisure time is not for you to enjoy it. The leisure time is for you to build a better version of yourself. And that is why the people who come back home after work and turn on TV and watch TV, they are losing this opportunity, right? They're not, uh, they're bad citizens in some ways, right? That's why there is such a big uh, fuss about children and the television set, because again, as a teenager, uh, and that, this is a very modern thing and because the emergence of leisure uh, in uh, children's culture is something that we associate with the 20th century. But then initially when uh, children had this leisure time, they were free to use it as they wanted. And by the end of the 20th century, and I think an interesting book uh, has to be written about it, uh, we have less and less actually leisure time for children both in soviet russia and post-soviet russia and in the united states of america back when me and you were growing up i think children were roaming streets kind of freely without adult supervision 
I think now if my neighbors see a 10 year old working one of the busiest streets, they might call child services. What, so what do you, but what do you, that, what's interesting also about the television is that, you know, and this goes to a, a couple of your other examples, particularly the models one, you, you spoke about pi, the pioneer, um, the circles and, and, and hobbies, hobby groups, you know, that is a very structured, you know, by institutions and television and some of these other practices that you look at aren't necessarily, I mean, they're structured, but they're not necessarily structured by, say, Soviet institutions as much. Um, do you see that people are shifting to a leisure time that is more, say, individualistic and away from institutionalized leisure? I think yes and no. I wonder to what degree this shift is actually an illusion because this is an argument that, for instance, Oleg Harkordin uh, makes in uh, in his book, that what is kind of interesting about the post-Stalinist period, about the uh, Khrushchev era, and about late socialism, is that we are, as society, we're going away from external surveillance into self-surveillance, right? And I think in this sense, the trend to among the educated classes at least, because then again, we, we should think of the late Soviet Union as a class called, as a kind of set of class cultures. Uh, but for the educated class, it was important to occupy this leisure time with meaningful activities, right? And that is why, uh, and I mentioned in, in, my, in my chapter on, uh, on streets and stairwells, a common idiom in, uh, in the Russian language becomes to protect children from the influence of the street, right? Because the street will not teach them anything good, right? So they should have leisure time, but they should work in their leisure time. They should improve themselves in the leisure time. So I, I'm curious to what degree this shift towards more individual kind of ways of uh, spending your leisure time is part of this move from external surveillance into self-surveillance. And kind of the fact that in the late Soviet era, we see a proliferation of self-education, I think is evidence that uh, society, there is no... <laughs> Like there is no less surveillance in society. I think that is the biggest question of the biggest lesson of the 20th century. We will never get less surveillance. We will only get more surveillance, but the forms of it will change and we will have a harder time to understand how it works and kind of uh, conceptualize ourselves as the subjects of surveillance. Talk a little bit, a bit more about television and how this structured uh, Soviet everyday life. Yeah, this is the most enigmatic of my chapters for myself. Uh, there's a famous story about Alexander Pushkin. Uh, I'm in no way comparing myself to Pushkin, but the, the story is uh, about Tatiana from Evgenia Negin, that she started behaving independently from his authorial intention. He never uh, intended for her to get married, and then all of a sudden she was married and said no to Negin. So I started it writing my chapter on the television set with only a very vague understanding of where it would lead me. 
And I'm very grateful to this chapter because among other things, it led me to my current project on uh, the popularization of scientific knowledge on epistemic governance in the second half of the 20th century in the Soviet Union. But also it made me, I finally, having written that chapter, I realized what Marshall McLuhan meant by medium is the message, right? So by reading Soviet theorists of uh, television and television cultures, I realized that indeed television changes any society in which it introduced. It changes it by rearranging the domestic space, right? By, uh, by you know, sending the radio to the exile to the kitchen, by kind of structuring your daily, your daytime. So from now on, your time has some kind of more marks your uh, day day schedule, right? You should watch this, this, and this, but it simply attracts you to the screen. It attaches you to the screen. It makes you sit in front of, of the screen. Same thing with uh, smartphones now, right? Uh, I find myself kind of sometimes just sitting with my smartphone in my hand and it's not the content, right? It could be checking the weather, it could be checking uh, it could be kind of, uh, I don't know, solitaire, it could be uh, Facebook, but the content in this sense is not that important. What is important is the thing itself, how it sort of attaches me to the screen and the uh, kind of the power, this power of the television screen or the smartphone screen, right? It's uh, um, that it's transparent to the light, that it can sort of project images from the outside world. It's a, it's a, uh, a lot of, a lot has been written on that, right? So television set as a, as a phenomenon has some of the most powerful uh, cultural theories, such as Kittler, such as Jameson, such as uh, McLuhan, uh, write on it. And uh, in, in the Soviet context, I was curious in the effects in the immediate social effects that it produces. And so the kind of reorganization of the domestic space and the effect that it has, the most important one, on your body through, you know, telemania and these uh, concerns about kind of children's health now that they move less, that they sort of sit in front of the TV, but also the use of the television set as the healer either through these uh, aerobic exercises that they broadcast in the 1980s, or more importantly, through those uh, psychics, uh, Chumak and Kaspirovsky, that kind of fascinated the Soviet, uh, Soviet society, even for one brief year. Um, it's interesting, you, you, fo you focus, you, you've spoken about the, the grip the screen, the object has, because one of the things I was thinking with, with the television, in a way, you're moving away from the materiality to something that's more immaterial. But after listening to you, I think you're right. There's something because, you know, admittedly, I find myself doing the same things you described with the smartphone. It, the content isn't important, right? It's 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 something about that object in the screen. Um, so, th so you know, this makes me ask, like, you okay? The, going back to this conception of the self, you know, you have this fragmented, contradictory self. A lot of these practices are not necessarily particular to the Soviet uh, experience. So what what makes the self of late socialism, in your view, Soviet? Is there anything particular about it? 
I think the uh, what is particular Soviet about it is the dramatic reformatting of the socialist project. So if in the um, earlier part of the century and in the mid-century and to some degree during the um, thaw, uh, Khrushchev's thaw, it was described as an exclusive thing, a set of what Soviet people kind of are not, what Soviet people sh should not be. During the uh, late Soviet period, it moved to kind of an inclusive understanding of what the Soviet is. It's like a good, you know, all-inclusive hotel in, in Turkey. Jeans, uh, yes. You know, jazz, why not? Uh, rock music, oh yeah. So all those things that had previously, uh, you know, a group of Komsomol activists were going around the cities and hunting down those Tilyagi. Now uh, take uh, take such a uh, cult Soviet film, one of the uh, new one of these sort of uh, part of the New Year program television program. It's uh, Cherodeye. It's magicians based loosely based on Arkadian Boris Strugatsky's uh, Monday Begins on Friday. Uh, in the original book that was written, I think, in the late 50s, the fact that the protagonist is wearing jeans um, in, a, in a small Soviet uh, town, kind of local kids gather around him and mock him, mock him as a stilaga. You take the um, film adaptation of that book and it's a musical and they perform in jeans, right? So jeans become kind of part of the, again, cultural repertoire of Soviet people. So I think that what makes uh, that's what interesting about this period. So at this time you could be a Komsomol activist and listen to rock music. And here where I'm disagreeing with Alexei Yurchak, that who argues that it was about this sort of spaces of freedom in late Soviet society, my interpretation is different. My interpretation is that to listen to be a Komsomol activist and to listen to the rock music was not contradictory at all. It was kind of just two different forms of performing kind of that you are a Soviet person during the late socialist period. The fact that we did have an earlier version, an early understanding of Sovietness uh, as an exclusive project, which was still around complicated, that thing, but well, then again, by the 1980s, the Soviet Union is quite different from the Soviet Union in the mid 20th century. That's really interesting because my assumption too is working from uh, a sense of exclusion, right? A Soviet citizen is in relationship to what it's not. And the way you describe it is this this passage to an inclusive model. It makes me also wonder about the hegemony of and even the legitimacy of the system, right? Because I think of that exclusionary um, Sovietness is about is in a context in where the system itself is not fully embedded right and and therefore you have to kind of you have to marginalize and purge out behaviors that are not are not seen as compatible whereas in in your telling in the late soviet period it's actually the reverse um does does this does this say anything to you about the embeddedness of the system and people's relationship to it a lot, especially when it comes to the educated class. And then again, in in my chapter on the um, 
television set when I uh, write about the social reaction to these seances, <laughs> right, of uh, Chumak and Kaspirovsky on the Soviet television set that were supposed to heal your uh, body, the response is different along the social spectrum, and it changes from negative, like most critics of Chumak and Kaspirovsky are educated men in their, let's say, photos. A, a kind of quintessential critic. And the quintessential follower is a woman with only a primary or like secondary or special technical education uh, in also in her 40s, right? But the gender and class is what really matters here. And so by watching these seances on the Soviet television and by exposing their bodies to the television screen and to the alleged healing power of the Soviet paranormalists, Soviet society is performing something that um, the educated, many people from the educated class call obscurantism, call kind of, they are terrified right that this that soviet society is performing this uh form of kind of well identity performance I, i'm not sure how to des describe it properly but they're terrified and they're ashamed of that and from affect theory we know that shame in many situations it's a block to unwanted unity to unwanted closeness we f don't feel shame for kind of martians we don't feel shame for a ghost, we feel shame for our compatriots. That is why so many people, Russian people, when they hear like Russian speech in the streets of Budapest or Helsinki, they pretend they're not Russians, right? Because they want, don't want for a number of reasons to be associated with their compatriots because they are ashamed of them. But the very feeling of shame implies this sort of unity. So uh, back to your question. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks a lot about this kind of uh, how late Soviet system is projecting itself on the people. And as we know, it's always the educated class that is tasked with upholding, right? So we can't have Stalin stand in, in every classroom <laughs> and uh, directing the teacher what to say. We have the teacher internalize this. We have the teacher internalize, the like the educated class internalize the dominant understanding of what good Soviet citizen is. Given your uh, look at people's relationships to material objects in this period, late socialism, and and you're you're inserting yourself in a in a historiographic tradition that is has looked at this period and is now relooking, reexamining. What does this your study tell you tell you about life on, in, during late socialism? Well, the first answer is obvious that life is diverse. So I think the the, the question is, uh, what is my contribution to the understanding, right, of life during late socialism? And I think my sort of intervention in this uh, conversation is that uh, it was part of the global experience of modernity. So living in the late Soviet Union with all the accompanying rhetorical, you know, um, cloud of like us versus them, right? It's the second Cold War. Well, 1970s is still the daytime. 
but Reagan is nearby. It is socialism versus capitalism, and even though there are some talks about the convergence, still, you know, it's us and them. It's they have Paris, we have I don't know Kastrama, right? So very different things. And uh, I would exchange, you know, five pairs of Soviet boots for a French pair, just one. But at the same time, I think. The focus, this focus on commodity shortage, which is so common in the studies of late Soviet era, is in many ways deceiving uh, because, uh, I mean, it has a certain communicative value. You know, this is how you recognize uh, people who think along the same sort of lines as you are. You say that, well, yeah, the Soviet consumer industry was bad and that what defined late Soviet kind of uh, right and kind of people start nodding yes you establish a contact I'm not don't think it's analytical and heuristic heuristically productive because this is censoring of a much broader historical experience and I think the accent on things and not the most obvious things but kind of uh, things in places such as models and heritage buildings and stairwells of apartment blocks it gives us an opportunity to defamiliarize this familiar narrative uh, and to see i think and that's what i'm trying to do in in the concluding uh, section of my book that uh, late soviet experience uh, was part of this global experience of modernity but the relationship was more different was more difficult. Uh, so I'm not speaking about the single global modernity. What I'm trying to conceptualize is that uh, this transnational communication of ideas, things, and uh, and bodies even, and people through tourism, right, through different kind of visits, it was structured along class lines. So class mattered for late Soviet society just as it mattered for kind of any other place in this planet and that what makes it part of the global modernity right not no single global modernity but rather different class experience of yes living in this sort of global world here's a a question going to this issue of consumerism and consumer objects how how did shortages of goods influence people's mentality towards things so right like we can even take say the bodybuilders you know, the, the need to acquire the very iron to pump it. Um, how did shortage work into, into that? I think in different ways. So first shortages of commodities offered um, uh, a set of uh, discursive responses, right? Uh, preset discursive responses, like you criticize the government for not providing. Uh, but another way was to, that you sort of embrace asketism. Right, so I I know quite many families who back in the Soviet era kind of actually were speaking that uh, well, kind of there's nothing bad about it, right? What we need is books and kind of some basic stuff. So uh, another uh, strategy is to occupy this uh, aesthetic position. Yet another strategy is inventiveness, right? So you uh, repurpose stuff, you reuse it, you kind of remake it. Uh, and it, it, curi curiously enough, but the uh, 
uh, experience of this consumer experience is in some ways relevant for us when we think about sustainable economy here and now in the 21st century. I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of the 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 our, how we understand Soviet society through consumerism and and the shortages of consumer of consumer products. Now I'm thinking more and more about that in relationship to environmental concerns considering now we have an over 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 consumption and literally and of of things that are increasingly disposable, right? We can't really fix anything. It's just disposable. And perhaps, you know, the flip side of, uh, of state socialism as an economy of shortage, the overabundance of late capitalism is just is perhaps even more damaging to, to our lives in many respects. Here's another question. Um, I wonder how Alexei chose the Soviet things to write about. This is always a good question. Were there any things that finally that, that you wanted to include but didn't basically didn't make it into the book? Yeah, so I forgot to mention that. Thanks, thanks for this question. But uh, when I was asking people that first question, like tell me about day, day, a day in the life. And uh, so many of them were speaking about the public transit and I did want to write a chapter about buses. Uh, another chapter that I th was thinking about was a chapter about lorries. Because uh, uh, Louis Ziegelbaum wrote about the socialist car but he was writing about the car and actually if you again think about class if you go to the countryside car is not important because you don't necessarily have a road that a Moskvich or a Lada can uh, can go but if you have a lorry if you are a lorry driver you won't own it of course the collective farm or the uh, state farm would own it but if you are a lorry driver you know what you are an important guy in your in in your farm so again, speaking of um, speaking of uh, how things change people, um, and another chapter that I really regret not writing about, uh, and I could see from the preview of the question that it actually relates to the question because I did focus on urban cultures, and uh, because it's a book and I only I have only so much time to you know and space to write it and uh, just so many chapters that I could uh, bring to des describe. So, of course, I was picking the objects that in some ways were more appealing to me as kind of a person who grew up in a North Russian town in a working class neighborhood. Uh, so in this sense, there is a certain reflection of my personal experience in kind of in the way I censored some of other objects, right? Uh, so I picked objects, kind of there is a gender bias and there is an urban bias in this book. That was Alexei Golubov. Alexei Golubov is a scholar of Russian history with a focus on social and cultural history of the 20th century and an additional expertise in science and technology studies, transnational history, and digital history. He's the author of several articles and books, including The Search for a Socialist El Dorado, Finnish Immigration from the United States and Canada to a Soviet Karelia in 1930s, published in 2014 by the University of Manitoba Press. And most recently, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Okay, so um, we just had this interview with Alexei, which was very fascinating and conceptual. And so I'm curious, what are some of your takeaways? 
what what struck you in this? Margaret, why don't you start? Well, I was thinking too, like, kind of from another angle, how the question of materiality, like, applies to identity today. Like, I'm 24 years old, and the things that I own, and a big part, actually, of the world that I live in is relatively immaterial. Like, you have a phone, you have this tiny little black box, but that's not the world. That's, like, I, I wonder how much, like, uh, emphasis, put, how much putting emphasis on the object is serving in, like, a contemporary understanding of identity and self. And, like, if this is something that applies solely to the past, or is this a concept that can be translated or at least transferred into today? And like also not just contemporary American or like just, you know, global identity, but Russian identity too. Like materiality in the Soviet space, how does that translate to materiality and uh, selfhood today in Russia? I think there's, there's, uh, there's a, this analysis of looking at material objects, space, the way it's structured, the relations that come from it. I mean, you can find these in all sorts of historical periods. I mean, just think of the, you know, one of the, just think of, say, the peasant house and how the structure of the peasant house really shapes relations. So, for example, if you're in peasant, a peasant, you know, home in the 19th century in Russia, the issue of privacy is non-existent, <laughs> right? Think of how you, it, you know, a house with multiple rooms shapes family relations, um, for example. Uh, so I think, I think it's a very fruitful uh, hist analysis for, for the past and the present, because we can see like, for example, he had this really interesting comment about the phone. I mean, I completely relate to this finding myself at times just kind of like uh, staring at the phone. <laughs> Uh, and regardless of what the content is, and so that that my relationship with that object is producing an affect, a certain behavior, a certain emotional response. So I actually think it it says a lot about you know how we lived and how we're living. Um, now, what one of the things that I took from it is his emphasis on class and how you know, one's class position is not only produced, it's also performed. Um, and it's, it distinguishes you from other classes. Um, so th I thought I thought that was really interesting um, as well, this whole question of, you know, how how is class structured in, say, the Soviet context, as opposed to how it's structured in other places? Yeah, like, how hanging out in stairwells and, and working out in, in garages comes, like intuitively you would think it comes from a lack of material availability, which doesn't necessarily take away from his point, but it definitely adds to like the conceptualizing of it. Like to look at these spaces as an act of choice seems almost disingenuous to the circumstances that led those objects and spaces in gaining momentum in the working class. Which working class is like another term in this case for people with less like material mobility, because that's an appropriate term. Okay, 
a comment about stairwells from the token waiting for this <laughs> from, the, <laughs> from the token russian well you were waiting for it because we already talked about it um i yeah i would disagree with alexei on the fact that stairwells was a gendered space because um yeah i feel like me growing up also used it <laughs> for hanging the hooligan then. <laughs> not really uh you i told you i was a straight aid student um yeah but we, we just use it for hanging out and uh i feel like lots of girls would hang out just like chat and like we would i don't know like for hours on end just because there was nowhere else to go um i mean public spaces do exist but i guess they were not uh we couldn't use it for the ends that we wanted to and also i'm not even sure if it's necessarily classed um because like say in certain in certain regions in russia like siberia or the far north especially in smaller towns um, that wouldn't have like many public spaces probably not not any like and you have winter that lasts for more than six months it's like really there are like no other spaces <laughs> for kids and teenagers to spend time um yeah america like historically in america if you think of the 1950s and all of this like representations it was the car the car, that's what I find really like one of these things, like the car was the place of young people to be able to gather. Whereas, because you don't have the same situation in say the Soviet Union, there's no car, the car doesn't play that same function. You have other spaces that are, that are utilized for these purposes. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to say about, uh, um, Alexei's uh, book and interview, and it's something that he said, I think, early on in an interview, and that is, we have a tendency to evaluate this period of Soviet history, which is really weird, because we don't necessarily, or I should say scholars don't necessarily do it so much about earlier periods, like the 1920s or 1930s, but the 1970s in particular is viewed primarily through a, a lens of consumption and lack and shortage and it's all this very like homo economicus, right? How, how does a, a Soviet person consume things? Um, or maybe even maybe a homo consumerist, <laughs> consumericus or something. Anyways, and so in our judgment of that society is, is primarily through that consumer lens. And here he's, he's positing, you know, a, a potential alternative uh, and how, for example, how shortage is productive in the sense of it requires people to have a different relationship to things, right? Um, which I, I think is, is also really, really interesting as well. Uh, I wanted to say something about, I definitely agree with you, Sean, and uh, we were having this conversation, I think, in my geography class, and... Um, recently it was in the news right that uh workers of um this company that produces uh tractors uh what's it called deer john deer john deer right so the workers of the factory were protesting 
um, because they want higher wages, better conditions. And in that same in that same news episode, they were talking about John Deere and how it like how hard it is for people to uh, repair their tractors because they they want to monopolize the whole process from like from from start to finish right so like if you're a third party repair person it's almost impossible to even like get uh, manuals or any kind of guidelines so they do a lot of things to like kind of own even the repair process and it made me think like right now you were talking about the shortage being productive and how like people yeah would like you know in terms of car repair repairs like people had to learn so much and acquire so many new skills and uh, expertise and things that you like like normally wouldn't have to and like I, I bet like a lot of Americans don't because they just like take it to um, the repair shop and usually like our we would think like you know usually well you know the American way is more convenient. Like you don't have to, you have special people, you know, where you just bring your car and like, you don't have to worry about it. But, you know, bringing it together with this John Deere um, episode, I feel like in a way, yeah, it's more convenient, but it's also like, I don't know, you, you don't get to build the skills that, you know, that you could and in a way it's also about growth and uh, development and learning new things and I don't know so it's kind of a shortage in a different sense. Well I, I listened to the interview actually when I was listening to the mix on I was listening with my parents and I asked my mom uh, because she was born in 65 so I asked her what were some of the spaces or things that she found uh, that, you know, uh, kind of inspire that sense of nostalgia or something within her. And she definitely just honed in on pop culture. And she said that, yes, this idea of materiality is interesting and, and it's worth talking about. But for, for us, <laughs> you know, um, it was always the... the the what felt like was holding the fabric of Soviet society together was the pop culture references that everyone knew and 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 was on board with like there were no names that people really didn't know about or or there was no movie that was anyway I thought that was a really interesting uh, approach too to look at pop culture in a more ethereal material <laughs> you know in this in this question well, thank you very much for your comments, as always. Uh, very interesting conversation, at least I find it. So I'm your host, Jillary, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please spread, help us spread the word about it. Tell your friends, family, pets, children, whoever, people on the street. Just run up to them and say, hey, listen to this podcast. You can also drop us a line on Facebook and Twitter or at the srbpodcast.org uh, contact page and let us know what you think of our interviews and conversations. And as always, we'd love to have your support. 
Uh, the SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other entities to keep it completely free without any paywalls or ads. So help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a monthly patron by joining the SRB Table of Ranks. And until next week, bye. Before me to some Arizona, Forza California, Grand.